Hello and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed Index quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focused topic and through the YJBM podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue subject matter. This episode is part of our series devoted to our December 2019 issue on death. I'm your co-host, Emma, a second year in the cell biology department. And I'm Elizabeth, a second year in the microbial pathogenesis department. Today, we are excited to talk to Dr. Lydia Tarhan, an assistant professor in the Department of Geology and Geophysics here at Yale. She studies the Ediacaran period, which occurred 653 to 541 million years ago. For context as to just how long that is, 600 million seconds is approximately 19 years. Today, we will be, we will be discussing Dr. Lydia Tarhan's research about the Ediacaran biota, the living organisms present during this time period, and their mysterious disappearance from the fossil record. Hi, Dr. Tarhan. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Emma. Thanks for having me here today. Thanks for joining us. Um, so to start, we were curious, how did you become interested in studying Earth's geological history? Well, that's a great question. Um, I've always been interested in sort of various environments that we see on Earth today and what are the processes responsible for them and how far back in our planet's history they extend. Um, and I've always been interested in some of the more enigmatic aspects of the fossil record of past life, of not only the sort of weird wonders, the enigmatic fossils that we still don't entirely understand, um, and the exceptionally preserved fossils that give us extraordinary insights into past life, but also questions of origins and questions of how did complex life come to be on our planet? And the Ediacara biota, which we'll be talking about in more detail today, really occupies a critical place in our attempts to reconstruct not only the history of environments on our planets, but also the history of life. And these fossils really occur at a critical juncture in the geologic record um, between the interval of Earth's history, where we had much simpler and microbial life during the Precambrian, and the emergence of complex animal life during the Phanerozoic, our modern eon. So you really went back to the origin of origins in all this, <laughs> both geologically and, and uh, with animals. So to kind of ground us, can you first explain to us what actually is the Ediacaran? Sure, so the Ediacaran period is the, is the last geologic period um, or interval of this uh, time period we call the Precambrian, which is an incredibly expansive stretch of time that includes the first 4 billion years, or nearly 90% of our planet's 4.5 billion year history. And it immediately precedes the Phanerozoic, which is the name for our, for our current, our present day eon. And the Ediacaran period also immediately follows the penultimate geologic period of the Precambrian, which we call the Cryogenian. And it's called the Cryogenian because this was in a time of, of really extreme climatic perturbations known as snowball earth, 
and the entirety of Earth's surface froze over at least a couple of times. So the Ediacaran period, which stretches from 635 million years ago to 542 million years ago, is really bookended on the one hand by not only this world that was dominated by small and simple and microbial life, uh, but also by these really extreme climatic perturbations. And on the other end, it's bookended by the emergence of complex and more animal dominated life and the development of ecological and environmental and climatic conditions that are much more recognizably like those of the present day. Awesome. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what sorts of organisms um, you see during the Ediacaran? Um, what are sort of their defining features, if they have any? So Ediacaran ecosystems included a variety of different types of organisms. Microbes were still extremely abundant. So the origins of microbial life long predate the Ediacaran period. And microbes are, of course, still enormously abundant today. Uh, but the fossil record of the late Ediacaran period is really anomalous with respect to the vast interval of geologic time that precedes it, because it's in the for the first time in the Ediacaran period that we see evidence of anomalously large relative to the life that came before. So Ediacaran organisms were um, commonly millimeter to centimeter to decimeter scale, but we actually have some organisms which were over a meter in length. So these are truly large organisms relative to microbial life and also a number of various complex forms. And it's this aggregate of complex macroscopic multicellular life that we call the Ediacara biota. So Ediacara fossil deposits include a few things that we might recognize today. For instance, uh, very simple burrows and trails uh, that were formed in the ancient sand by burrowing organisms. So similar to some of the um, worm-like burrowing organisms that uh, we see forming trails today. We presume that similar organisms were present in Ediacara ecosystems forming these very similar structures. But many of the Ediacara biota fossils, or more strictly speaking, body fossils, which are fossilized carcasses, and what most people think of when they hear the term fossil, um, are really just plain bizarre. There are frond-like organisms that are not entirely unlike modern panaceaceans or sea pens, but some of them have iterative um, or fractal, self-iterative or fractal patterning throughout their bodies. Um, and the, the image I like to call to mind for that, um, for something that you know, more people will, will have, a, have a good search image for, is something like Chinese broccoli. It's a very unusual style of bodily construction that we don't see in animals today, at least not on that scale. And then there are other organisms that look like lobes of garlic and others that appear to have been very intricately ridged sacs. And there are some that appear to have threefold symmetry or to be triradial, which again is another body form that is really unusual today. And these organisms were almost without exception entirely soft bodied. They didn't have any biominerals so teeth or scales or bones or shells, which are usually the only things that make it into the fossil record. So the Ediacara organisms are very unusual in the shapes and the structural arrangements of their bodies and tissues, what we call their morphology. 
And they're also very unusual in their fossilization. And in large part because of these two enigmas of their bodily construction and their fossilization, the classification of most Ediacrobiota organisms has for decades eluded us. And in many cases, we still don't know what these organisms were and to what extent living groups, um, to which living groups of organisms they're most closely related. And in fact, the history of their study really reflects this confusion. They've been described as just about everything from an entirely, um, from truly modern, what we call crown group animals to fungi, lichens, bacterial colonies, giant prokaryotes to a separate kingdom of life. Not only the physical features and likely anatomy of these organisms, but also evidence of their ecologies, whether they moved or not, if so, how they moved, how they fed, has begun to chip away at some of these long-standing mysteries, at least for a small handful of individual organisms, such that we're now reasonably certain that the Ediacrobiota included at least some animals or animal relatives, as well as algae. But even these interpretations have been controversial, and we still don't have a good sense of the affinities of most Ediacra species. That's so interesting. Like, I had no idea that there was this entire complex world that doesn't exist today that we're still trying to understand about. Um, that's that's so interesting that there was this, it sounds like it was so complicated and like similar to like how complicated everything is today. It's just, it's so interesting that we still don't know that much about it. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to me that I love reading those stories about what is this thing? Is it an animal? Is it a plant? We don't know. How are we going to find out? It looks like a blob. <laughs> And we know it's organized, so it was probably alive, but we have no idea what it is or what it was or how it came to be. I love those stories. Yeah, me too. I mean, that's one of the things that first drew me to the Ediacra biota was this, this sense of mystery, this sense of, wait, how can we not know if these are animals, plants, bacteria, fungi, or something else entirely? How can, how can we actually not be able to determine that? Why is that? And that's really what one of the questions that got me to, to dig into this issue. So I guess this is such a fascinating period with such fascinating organisms, but what happened to them? What happened to the Ediacaran biota? That is, uh, when you look at the fossil yeah, no, that's yeah. been one of the, the most long-standing questions concerning certainly the Ediacra biota, and I would say sort of in the evolution of complex life more broadly. Uh, just to, you know, spend a, a moment on this question, it's really a critical one because at the broadest scale, we're asking about the evolutionary trajectory of complex life on our planet. And is there a sort of a single path towards the emergence of complex animal grade life? Or have there been multiple experiments along the way? And perhaps the Ediacra biota is one of those failed experiments. And if we're considering, you know, at, at a scale even beyond our planet, if we're searching for life on exoplanets, you know, what should we be looking for? Should we expect that um, that there's just been, there is at best a single path towards complexity, or are there are a number of potentially very different paths towards 
towards complex life like the Ediacara organisms. Um, so what exactly happened to the Ediacara biota is really a very pressing question. Um, they appear relatively suddenly in the geologic record um, around about the middle to late portions of the Ediacaran period. And then they have roughly 30 million years of duration in the fossil record, but they disappear at the end of the Ediacaran period, at the end of the Precambrian and the beginning of the Phanerozoic Eon. And why that is, is really a critical question because we are still trying to understand to what extent these organisms are allied with living groups of animals or other living groups of organisms. Do, for instance, the roots of the, what we call the Cambrian explosion, the radiation of complex animal life and ecologies that really marks the beginning of the Phanerozoic Eon, back all the way back to the days of Darwin, um, are the roots to that explosion actually in the Ediacaran period? Are these the ancestors of those more recognizably um, animal-dominated groups that radiate subsequently, um, or are they entirely distinct from one another? So whether or not the Ediacara biota um, actually went extinct at the end of the Ediacaran period, or whether perhaps other circumstances might be responsible for their disappearance from the fossil record um, is really, really a critical question. Um, and in the latter scenario, one of the most common models which has historically been proposed is that uh, these Ediacara organisms, again, were entirely soft-bodied. They consisted only of soft tissues. They didn't have biomineralized hard parts, which are typically the only thing that ever makes it into the fossil record. So uh, fossils are, or, you know, again, strictly speaking, body fossils are the remains of the bodies or the tissues of organisms that are preserved in rock. Um, and make it into the geologic record. But in order to make it into the geologic record, organisms have to survive abundant processes detrimental to fossilization. They go through decay, they're scavenged, they're, they're broken up or abraded by waves or by wind. Um, and once they make it into the rock record initially, once they actually become buried in sediments and those sediments turn into rocks, those rocks have to survive things like mountain building processes or the subduction of the seafloor underneath the continental plates, uh, which are likewise agents of destruction of fossils or can disfigure them beyond recognition. So exceptional fossilization, the fossilization of soft tissues, which is what we know the Ediacara biota were entirely comprised of and didn't have any hard parts is really an extraordinary thing and it requires extraordinary conditions. And in some cases, those conditions um, can be prevalent for certain periods of time, um, which we call preservational windows. And those windows can open and those windows can close. So one of the major questions about the Ediacra biota, given that these organisms were soft-bodied and that their preservation is therefore exceptional and required exceptional circumstances, is, is it possible that the Ediacra organisms actually survived the end of the Precambrian, at least for a little while, but were no longer being fossilized? And that that boundary in time, rather than marking the extinction of these ancient organisms, actually was simply the closing of a fossilization window 
of the extraordinary circumstances that permitted those soft tissues to actually make it into the fossil and geologic records. Fascinating. Um, yeah, it's, it's so crazy to me that this entire complex you know, world of life, we might have not even know about, known about it had it not been that there was the right circumstances at the right time to preserve them. It makes me wonder, like, you know, are we missing other things that might have existed on the world just because, you know, they couldn't be fossilized? Yeah, no, I, I worry about that all the time. And it extends to not only, you know, individual organisms, but also thinking about things at the um, at the ecosystem scale. So when we look at exceptionally preserved fossils, and first of all, it's it's important to to um, to note that not all exceptionally preserved fossils are the same. So there are different modes or styles of exceptional fossilization. Um, one of the more common forms is that the more chemically resistant components of, of a carcass, of a body, or of soft tissues can survive degradation and be preserved as thin, carbon-rich films. But you can also replicate soft tissues or replace them by minerals that form during decay. Um, and common minerals involved in this type of exceptional fossilization include pyrite or a fool's gold, apatite, calcium phosphate, or silica. And then there are rarer instances like entrapment in amber. Um, but even the most extraordinary preservation of soft tissues involves some amount of decay. So there's always some amount of information loss. And in fact, decay is often an integral component in the precipitation of some of these very minerals that are responsible for exceptional preservation. So actually, counterintuitively, decay is essential for exceptional fossilization. But obviously, it's a question of scale. If you have too much decay or if it occurs too quickly, you're not able to actually capture that anatomical detail and create that extraordinary fossil. But because decay and information loss, or sometimes the introduction of secondary and artificial features that are a byproduct of decay are, um, are unavoidable, but also differ between different styles of fossilization. And different styles of fossilization have different levels of bias associated with them in terms of what typically gets preserved and what typically gets lost. It's really important that we understand the mechanisms responsible for exceptional fossilization. So in other words, it's tempting when we have really extraordinarily well-preserved fossils, such as fossils of soft tissues or soft-bodied organisms like the Ediacara biota, to take them at face value and say, okay, this is, I'm, this is extraordinarily fortunate for our ability to reconstruct past life from this time interval. Um, I'm going to take this wonderful fossil deposit as a snapshot, as a census population of what was life was like on the ancient seafloor some 560 million years ago. But the reality is, is that unless we understand what mechanisms are responsible for fossilization, we don't know what information has been lost and how much information has been lost. So if we're going to attempt to reconstruct not only what these organisms were, but also what did the structure of these ecosystems look like? If we're going to be able to infer, you know, what sort of interactions took place between different members of these ancient communities, but also if we want to make very broad statements about evolutionary patterns, 
when we observe apparent appearances and disappearances of these fossils in the geologic record, we really need to understand what factors are responsible for their fossilization so that we can better judge, is this an accurate look at ancient seafloor diversity? And do we have grounds to say that this was a true extinction event or a true origination event or not? Um, and what sort of environmental conditions were responsible for this fossilization? And how did those change? So how did that environmental change against um, as the backdrop of this biological change affect not only the ecology of these ancient organisms, but also their chances of making it into the fossil record. So it sounds like this whole process is very nuanced. I feel like most people when they hear extinction event, what they think of is the extinction of the dinosaurs. They think asteroid, everything died, and we know that because we stopped seeing things. But it sounds like it's actually much more complicated that you have to look on both sides of, of the coin. You kind of have to look at not only the fossils, but also the environment. So that kind of leads us into the next point of you, your research has been focusing on these many hypotheses for how or why or the explanations for what we see in the fossil record. So can you elaborate on these hypotheses as to what happened at the end of the Ediacaran from both the geology and the environment and the animals themselves or organisms? Yes, um, yeah, there's been, you know, any number of hypotheses about what happened to the Ediacara biota, and these are wrapped up in the other questions of what the Ediacara organisms were as well. Um, but I would say the three chief hypotheses um, fall into two categories. One is that, yes, there was truly an extinction event, and they disappeared. And the other is that maybe they didn't disappear, or maybe they eventually disappeared, but maybe not as a true extinction event or mass extinction, and it was a question of preservation, and the preservational window closed. Um, and in terms of if we assume that it was a true disappearance, and it wasn't just changes in fossilization, there are two hypotheses for why that might have been the case. And one is that there was environmental change, um, which is something that's been implicated in many of the mass extinctions that we have recorded um, in Earth's more recent history, like the Cretaceous-Paleogene mass extinction in which the dinosaurs disappeared. Um, but the other possibility that's been, that's been mooted is that um, changes in ecological interactions between Ediacara biota organisms and other organisms and potentially early complex animals emerging around the same time may have played a role in driving the Ediacara biota to extinction either very directly uh, by, for example, preying upon them, or uh, more indirectly, for instance, through competition for shared resources that may have been scarce. So those are the sort of three models for what happened to the Ediacara biota. Changes in fossilization or true extinction mediated either by environmental change or by some sort of ecological escalation um, which was ultimately detrimental to Ediacara organisms. So I've, I've long been interested in this question of what happened to the Ediacara organisms, again, because of the role they potentially play in our understanding of the emergence of complex animal life and to what extent they're really a stepping stone along that path. 
Um, and I've really focused upon sort of both angles in my research, both the fossilization question and the extinction question. Um, I can talk a little bit about the fossilization angle first. Um, so as we were just discussing, um, there are a number of different ways that you can have exceptional preservation of soft tissues or of soft-bodied organisms um, like the Ediacara biota, um, but we really need to understand what the underlying mechanisms are to gauge to what extent those fossils are an accurate representation of ancient seafloor diversity and to understand if appearances and disappearances actually reflect evolutionary trends as opposed to other factors such as environmentally mediated changes in fossilization. So did the window for fossilization of the Ediacara biota close at the end of the Ediacaran? And is that why they disappear? So the Ediacara biota are by definition exceptional fossils because they were entirely soft-bodied organisms that nonetheless made it into the fossil record, which is really not the rule. It is the exception in the fossil record. But they're preserved in a very distinctive and unusual style. In most Ediacara biota fossil deposits, these organisms are preserved as what we call casts and molds or impressions in sandstones. So if you were to imagine you know, pressing your hand into sand at the beach, for example, if we were so fortunate as to be able to go to the beach this summer, um, the impressions of not only the overall features of your hand, but features like uh, maybe your, the edges of your fingernails or the wrinkles of your skin, that replication of the anatomy of your hand in those sand grains, that mold of your hand is sort of analogous to what we're talking about here in terms of the fossilization of the Ediacara biota. And we call this Ediacara style fossilization um, because it's a particularly well-known um, in the Ediacara biota and in the Ediacara member, this unit where the Ediacara biota were first described. So no portion of the original tissues remain um, in these instances, but all of the detailed anatomy of their soft tissues is replicated in the arrangement of those sand grains that were pressed against them once they died and once they were buried. Um, and because these were soft tissues and would therefore have been prone to pretty rapid decay once these organisms died, we know that this process of replication via these sandy molds must have started immediately after they died and before their carcasses entirely rotted away. But how exactly they were fossilized has long been mysterious. Um, previous studies have suggested that this was facilitated by the precipitation of pyrite minerals or, or fool's gold as a veneer or mask along the upper surfaces of these organisms after their, their death. And, um, and this has been called the death mask model, which is sort of a reminiscent of things like the, the gold leaf death mask that were, that were used by, uh, by the ancient Greeks, for example. Um, another um, model for how these organisms were preserved has focused upon the tissues themselves and suggested that they actually must have been incredibly sturdy, um, something more like lignin in modern plants and fungi. Um, however, I personally never, never found either of these hypotheses particularly convincing. 
uh, we know um, from very detailed preservation of some of these organisms, in some cases, examples of these organisms that were fossilized in the act of, of being uprooted from the seafloor by currents um, or tumbled along the seafloor um, as part of underwater storm events. We know that the tissues of many of these organisms could be plastically deformed. So I think they're truly soft tissues. We don't need to invoke um, something extraordinary in the composition of these organisms to explain their fossilization. Um, and there are also very few instances of pyrite or fool's gold associated with these moldically preserved Ediacara fossils. So, uh, so I had reason to be a little bit dubious of either of these two prevailing models for fossilization. Um, and I uh, I had been already working on the Ediacara biota more from an organismal and ecological perspective. And one of the things that I noticed was that these are really silica rich rocks. Not only is there not good evidence for pyrite, but there's an awful lot of silica. The grains themselves are silica, they're quartz crystals, and the cements that hold those sand grains in place that were responsible for transforming those sandy, loose sediments to sandstone, the rock, those cements are themselves silica. So I started to wonder, could silica have somehow been involved in the fossilization of these Ediacara organisms? And that was really a, a, a thought that got the wheels spinning um, because this is an interval in Earth's history when we think that the oceans were actually remarkably rich in dissolved silica, much more than they are today. And that difference is because today we have all sorts of organisms that draw down ocean reserves of silica to make shells and tests for themselves. So sponges make spicules for themselves or their structural supports out of silica. Also, there are many groups of plankton, particularly diatoms, which are some of our most um, abundant uh, plankton in the oceans today that make shells for themselves out of silica and zooplankton groups like radiolarians as well. So today, there's remarkably little silica in the oceans, dissolved in the oceans, because all of these organisms are responsible for uptaking that silica in order to, to make their biominerals, to make their hard parts. But prior to the evolution and radiation of these silica biomineralizing organisms, the oceans would have been a lot richer in dissolved silica. And in fact, there are all sorts of very silica-rich deposits in the geologic record of the Precambrian um, that appear to have formed um, on the seafloor or um, just below the seafloor. There are also um, other examples from fossil archives of, of really extraordinarily preserved um, assemblages of, of microbes that have been essentially entombed in silica during this interval. So all of these lines of evidence suggest that um, the oceans were much richer in dissolved silica during the Precambrian, which is also the time of the Ediacara organisms. Um, so I sort of set out on an attempt to test this hypothesis of could silica precipitation have played some role in the preservation of these organisms and this extraordinary style of preservation. 
um, and I, um, I did a fair amount of field work in Australia at the hype locality of the Ediacara biota in the, in the Ediacara Hills in the Flinders. Um, and I looked at the various aspects of their paleontology, of the distribution of different taxa. Um, I also did some microscopic work where I took very um, thin slivers of the rock, um, thin enough that you can actually shine a light through them under the microscope and examine their mineralogical composition. And I also did um, some geochemical analyses of differences in trace element concentrations um, across these, these thin slivers of these slices of these, of these Ediacara fossils. And all of, um, all of the features that I observed, uh, those different scales from the scale of the fossil deposit itself and what uh, organisms were in it to the scale, um, uh, to the microscopic scale, indicated that not only were these very silica-rich rocks, um, where not only the grains, but the cements are silica, but those silica cements actually precipitated really early in the geologic history of these rocks. Um, potentially early enough to have formed the glue that held together the scaffolding of those sand grains that replicated those, all of that detailed anatomy of these Ediacara organisms. So those analyses bore out that early precipitation of these silica cements um, prior to the total decay and collapse of the carcasses of these buried Ediacara organisms um, on the ancient seafloor could indeed have played a strong role in their fossilization. And another really intriguing um, door that this opened was that uh, we don't think that the decline in dissolved silica um, in the ancient oceans happened at the Precambrian Phanerozoic boundary itself, which is when the Ediacara biota disappear. In fact, it seems as though that persisted actually a few tens of millions of years at least, if not hundreds of millions of years into the Phanerozoic eon. So in other words, if early precipitation of these silica minerals was really vital to the fossilization of the Ediacara biota. If this, is our, if this is our window for fossilization, that window was still open at the end of the Ediacaran when the Ediacara biota disappeared. And in fact, we have examples of fossils um, of younger age that are preserved in the same style as the Ediacara biota, as these molds, as these impressions in sandstone but they're entirely different organisms. And in fact, they're, they're um, much more recognizable animal groups. So there are jellyfish that are preserved in this style. And there are different types of arthropods that are preserved in this style. So in other words, the style doesn't need, seem to be linked to the affinity or the tissue structure of Ediacara organisms per se. And it also appears to persist after the disappearance of the Ediacara biota. So it seemed really unlikely that the Ediacara disappearance could be attributed to changes in fossilization and the closing of the preservational window. Um, and because we see this same style of preservation affecting a number of different types of organisms within the Ediacara biota, as well as younger animal groups um, in the Phanerozoic, um, it seems as though this is a type of fossilization that is not biased 
toward particular groups of organisms. And it should give us, in theory, a relatively complete snapshot of ancient seafloor diversity, which was something that had previously perhaps been assumed, but never really demonstrated. Um, so that was very exciting to be able to find some underlying mechanism um, that could explain the Ediacara fossil record um, in some sense, but also give us some guidance toward to what extent we can use the Ediacara fossils as a metric for ancient seafloor diversity and community structure. That's extremely interesting that just by studying the the rocks, I guess, to use a very non-technical term, around where these fossils are formed, um, you were able to come up with this entire mechanism by which these fossils were created. Um, and I was just curious, as someone very naive to the field, um, do geologists or archaeologists ever try to replicate hypothesized fossilization conditions using, you know, methods in the laboratory to see if these things are actually able to occur? Yes, they do actually. So there's a whole field, a whole branch of paleontology that's devoted to fossilization experiments. Um, and that's actually something that, uh, that I'm currently working on with a, a number of other members of, of the Department of Geology and Geophysics. And we've, um, we've actually just written up some of our initial results, but we're hoping to do some more work. But so far what we've found uh, looks very promising in terms of being able to replicate some of the key processes um, of this silica-mediated fossilization in the lab and having that occur on, on relatively short timescales, short enough to explain this extraordinary fossilization. Yeah, that's really, that's really cool that you can replicate a process from 500, over 500 million years ago in a lab today. That's crazy. Yeah, no, so, it's, it's pretty incredible. And you can never, you know, totally replicate the, all the conditions in the ancient ocean, right? Like it's a very complex place, but you, it, what these experiments do allow you to do is sort of tease apart and ask questions about what were some of perhaps the most important factors involved and can I test whether or not this particular factor played an important role in fossilization. Yeah, so it seems like, so what you found is that the window of preservation was open across the boundary between the Ediacaran and the Cambrian. So that kind of disproves the hypothesis that these organisms continued to persist and just stopped being fossilized. So that kind of leads us to the other set of hypotheses that this was an actual extinction event. So can you elaborate on what that would look like and what the evidence for that is or is not? Yes. Um, so that's, that, that is the obvious million dollar question here. If it's not fossilization and it's a real disappearance, why did that happen? Um, and again, there's sort of two end member hypotheses. One is that there's environmental change that was deleterious to the Ediacara organisms and perhaps analogous to some of the major extinction episodes that we see in Earth's younger history, where um, for most of the big five mass extinctions, we think that some sort of environmental change um, was implicated in the extinction of, of various groups of organisms. Um, 
And the other scenario is, is about, uh, is often called biotic replacement, or did some sort of ecological escalation, um, some sort of negative interaction between Ediacara organisms and other organisms, for instance, the emerging complex animals that were increasingly appearing on the scene, did that play some role in the disappearance of the Ediacara organisms? And both of these questions are, are, are challenging because often the resolution of the fossil record is not necessarily great enough to directly get at this question of ecological interactions and to what extent um, they were um, deleterious or positive. So at, even in Earth's younger history, the resolution of the fossil record is often not great enough to really test some of these more um, detailed ecological models of things like competitive exclusion that modern ecologists um, are constantly, um, constantly assessing in the field today. Um, but with that being said, um, we can look for evidence of at least synchronicity um, in terms of appearances of complex animal life um, and disappearances of organisms like the Ediacara biota. And um, one of the, the lines of evidence which has been used to suggest that there could perhaps have been some synchronicity is that um, trace fossils, uh, which we touched on very briefly earlier, but which are the record of animal behavior. And most commonly we think of trace fossils as burrows and trackways and trails. So they're the structures formed by animals burrowing in sediments. Um, and they can only be formed by true animals. And in fact, not only true animals, but by bilaterian animals, animals with bilateral symmetry, and with anterior posterior differentiation, so their front end is different from their back end, um, and three tissue layers and more complex musculature. So in order to make a true, like a trail in the sand, um, as a typical worm or arthropod might make, you actually need to have more robust musculature and more differentiation of tissue layers um, of a bilaterian animal. So although this is, one of the lines of evidence that although many of the individual Ediacara organisms still remain enigmatic to us in terms of their affinities and to whom they were most closely related and whether or not they were animals, we do know that there were some animals in the Ediacara biota because we have some trace fossils. There's simple trace fossils, there's small trace fossils, but they tell us that there were some bilaterian animals that were actually burrowing in those ancient seafloor sands and that they lived concurrently with spatially and in time with the Ediacara biota. Um, but there have been a number of observations that toward the end of the Ediacaran period um, we see the emergence of more complex types of trace fossils potentially recording more complex burrowing behaviors or potentially more um, a broader assortment of different types of organisms engaged in burrowing. And it's been suggested that having more abundant um, or more diverse burrowers on the ancient seafloor may have been detrimental to the Ediacara organisms, in part because we think that many of them were stationary and also lived on or in these widespread microbial background. 
So it's been suggested that these ancient burrowers, these early pioneers of burrowing bilaterian animals may have been responsible for burrowing away or grazing away the microbial mat grounds on which the Ediacara macroorganisms depended. Um, certainly for stabilizing the seafloor in these often very high energy um, sandy environments um, and also potentially for, for nutrition. So that would be clear competition between the Ediacaran biota and these bilaterian animals for a finite resource, these microbial mats. Potentially, if it, if it was a nutritional resource, but even just from the perspective of uh, stabilizing the seafloor, um, that may have been more uh, analogous to, we could say, habitat destruction in some sense. Um, so it's been suggested that these early burrowing organisms may have been detrimental to the Ediacara organisms by either destroying their habitat, of uh, disrupting these mat grounds, uh, potentially competing for similar resources, and maybe those were resources within the mat grounds, um, or maybe even by directly preying upon them because modern burrowing organisms employ a wide array of different ecological strategies. Some of them are grazing and some of them are mining bits of decaying organic matter um, from sediments and soils like earthworms today, um, but some of them are also predators. So that's been another potential negative ecological interaction that's been thrown out there. The problem is, is that we really don't have direct evidence for any of these ecological interactions. And many of the reports for these latest Ediacaran burrowing organisms through the lens of the trace fossils, the burrows that they've created, are actually found in different places than the places where we have found Ediacara biota fossils. So we don't have really the concurrence in space or potentially time to be able to say that this was a negative interaction. Moreover, we do have evidence for burrowing animals extending uh, much further back in the Ediacaran. And again, um, concurrent with some of these Ediacara biota fossilized communities. And in fact, some of these trace fossils, some of these burrows for these ancient burrowing animals um, co-occur with Ediacara fossils and what are our richest and most ecologically complex and most diverse Ediacara fossil assemblages. So in some of the places where we do have evidence for this co-occurrence and for that happening um, a long time before the end of the Ediacaran and the disappearance of the Ediacara biota, um, rather than seeing evidence of a sort of a negative interaction between them, um, we don't see any evidence that the presence of these burrowers was actually detrimental to the Ediacra biota uh, proper that were living in these same communities. And that was actually um, one of the, the questions that I was particularly interested in for the end of the Ediacaran as well. So I already knew from my work on sort of on um, the Ediacara fossil deposits in South Australia um, that we had trace fossils that were made by these early complex animals co-occurring with these rich and diverse assemblages of Ediacara biota organisms. Um, but what about the very end of the Ediacaran? Um, so again, 
so far we hadn't we didn't really have great evidence for a concurrence in time or place between these burrowing animals and the latest of our ediacrobiota communities that would really allow us to get at this question of were there negative interactions between them um, but then more recently i started working at a ediacaran locality in nevada that's called Mount Dunphy, which is near the very small uh, mining town of, of Gold Point in Nevada. And Mount Dunphy is really an extraordinary place because it, it has a great um, geologic record that spans the Precambrian Phanerozoic boundary, including the end of the Ediacaran. And it's a locality where um, we have chemical archives, we have different types of rocks that allow us to track changes in the physical and chemical environments um, across that boundary, and it also has um, a, a pretty good fossil record that allows us to track changes in biology and ecology across that boundary as well. Um, and one of the things that my colleagues and I discovered at Mount Dunphy um, is that um, not only do we have some Ediacra biota macroorganisms in the fossil assemblages there, um, but we also have burrowing organisms um, preserved through their trace fossils, through their burrows, preserved not only in the same section and at the same locality, but on the same exact fossil surfaces. Um, so we finally have our concurrence in space and time that we were looking for to be able to, to assess these questions. Um, and not only were these sort of the simple burrows that we've long known that these earliest um, burrowing animals in the Ediacaran could make, but some of these burrows were much more complex. They were still small, but they were very complex and sophisticated in their construction and in that manner, much more reminiscent of the types of burrows that we find in the Phanerozoic um, that are made by, by various animal groups that, uh, that we know and that we recognize. Um, so there, we had some of these more complex styles of burrowing, which have been previously invoked to record behaviors that could have been detrimental to Ediacra organisms. And we have these occurring co-occurring with Ediacra biota fossils. And we have this persistence, this co-occurrence persisting for a long stretch of time up until the Ediacaran Cambrian boundary. So on the basis of, of those evidences, um, we interpreted that we actually, where one of the best places where we can actually test these questions, we don't see evidence that burrowing organisms played any role in the disappearance of the Ediacra biota. And in fact, even if we cross the Phanerozoic, the Precambrian Phanerozoic boundary and look at burrowing um, in the early Phanerozoic, uh, which is another area that I've, I've spent uh, a lot of time um, from a research perspective, um, we see that the evolution of burrowing organisms and their ability to really stir up sediments of the seafloor and disrupt them was a very gradual process and it took hundreds of millions of years before that burrowing um, started to approach the sort of intensities of sediment stirring and churning characteristic of animals on the seafloor today. So just, just to summarize, um, the coexistence of the Ediacara bio, biota um, with these bilaterian animals for a long time um, is enough to show that they're probably not 
um, a competition with the, the, that the bilaterian animals aren't a competition for the Ediacara biota. Um, so essentially what you've told us is that um, based on fossilization conditions, um, the Ediacara biota didn't disappear from the fossil record due to um, an inability for them to be fossilized. And they also didn't disappear due to the emergence of bilaterian animals. Um, that sort of leaves one thing that you mentioned, which is potentially a disappearance due to environmental change. So I'm curious if that's currently what your hypothesis is as to what happened, and if so, what sorts of things you might need to do to um, figure out if that is what happened. Yeah, I think that's that's a big question, right? Is um, if if we can say definitively that it wasn't closing of a preservational window, and therefore it was a real disappearance. But if we don't see compelling evidence for it being ecologically mediated, that does sort of leave us with, what about environmental change? And that would really allow us to place the Ediacara biota and its, and its disappearance more in the context of, um, of the evolution of animal life during the Phanerozoic, during our modern eon, where many of our major extinction events have been mediated by environmental change. Um, and I think that there is a lot that is compelling in that hypothesis. And the Ediacaran period was an interval of environmental change. Not only is it bracketed at its start by these major snowball earth um, glaciations when the entirety of the world froze over, um, but we also have some inkling that near the end of the Ediacaran, we may have some, had some major perturbations to, to Earth's carbon cycle and how, how carbon is um, stored and how it is respired and oxidized, um, and that that in turn might have had some effect upon oxygen levels in the oceans and the atmosphere. And this is also occurring against the, uh, the backdrop of a, of a larger interval, a longer interval of change um, in ocean chemistry, not only in the amount of dissolved oxygen, which is of course essential to complex life um, and to animal life, um, but also uh, other aspects of the chemistry of the ancient oceans from what sorts of uh, mineral, carbonate minerals precipitate um, and uh, to silica, to um, how nutrients are cycled. So it's sort of an interval of profound change, but it's still really broad brush, I think, in our ability to reconstruct what exactly happened over the Ediacaran Cambrian boundary. So we have sort of a, a larger scale picture of larger scale changes in these various um, chemical and environmental parameters, but we don't really have a silver bullet just yet. We don't have um, an exact marker in time for something that is unambiguously evidence of a major environmental change that's concurrent with the disappearance of the Ediacara biota. So I think that um, there are a number of potentially interesting candidates and we can't yet rule out that there was some sort of a major environmental change, but there's a lot of work that still needs to be done um, in order to, to really unravel whether or not um, we have sufficient evidence to, to put our finger on any particular environmental trigger. And really one of the things that's most needed um, towards resolving this question, and something I alluded to earlier, is that unfortunately the resolution of the fossil record 
um, is sometimes not great enough to allow us to answer all of the questions that we would like to answer, or at least not right now. So what we really need are we need more um, areas around the world. We need more um, deposits, more geologic deposits that have both good fossil archives and also um, archives of ancient environmental change. Um, so when we're when we're forced to, you know, say, take a fossil record from Australia and a chemical record from the United Kingdom and try to piece them together, that's really challenging to gauge not only concurrence, but cause and effect. What we really need are better archives from both sides of the spectrum, both fossil and um, environmental and geological. Um, and until we have a greater number of examples where we can actually assess both environmental and biotic change concurrently from the same archives, from the same geologic succession, I think that we're, we're gonna continue to spin our wheels a bit in terms of trying to resolve this question. So I guess that that's a little bit of an unsatisfactory answer. I think that environmental change could indeed have played a role in the disappearance of the Ediacrobiota. And I think we can certainly at this point say that it truly was a disappearance and not merely a closing of a preservational window. But we still have a lot of work in front of us in order to not only verify that there is uh, sufficient grounds for, for um, for invoking any particular environmental change as an agent of disappearance in the Ediacra biota, but being able to, to more, um, to, to really get at this question of cause and effect uh, and not just a question of correlation. Yeah, see, I would disagree because it's an <laughs> ongoing puzzle and I would argue that that's the best kind of puzzle. That no, there that's something to that. So yeah, it's a rich area for future study, which yes, I'm I'm certainly grateful for because uh, there's a, it's not an open and shut story, and it, it's a much more uh, rich and complex story, and I'm going to enjoy working on it for you know the next few years or decades. But uh, yeah, it still is a, a still a to be continued sort of story. So why is it kind of to zoom out quite a bit? Why is it so important to distinguish between these hypotheses about the Ediacaran and biota? What does each hypothesis tell us about life today or life over the course of Earth's history? So, I mean, we ultimately want to be able to distinguish between these various hypotheses to go back to this big question of, to understand sort of larger scale trends in the evolution of complex life. Um, at the finest scale, at the, at the most granular scale, we need to understand things like mechanisms of fossilization before we can even start to address the question of to what extent these ancient enigmatic organisms of the Ediacra biota were related to living animal groups or to other groups of living organisms or extinct organisms. Um, so we need to first understand those very fine scale mechanisms in order to then back out and ask these larger scale questions. But uh, we want to understand whether or not the Ediacra biota was allied to modern groups of life, such as, as animals, um, and whether or not it truly was wiped from the face of the earth at the end of the Precambrian, because we want to understand sort of that evolutionary trajectory of complex life on our planet, not just so that we can better reconstruct 
you know, where did, where did complex life come from? Where did animals come from? If these are indeed the ancient um, ancestors of, of many of our living animal groups, but also from an exoplanetary or an astrobiological perspective, what should we expect when we search for life on other planets? Should we expect that there's really sort of a single path towards complexity or that there can be a lot of hiccups along the way? Um, what are the sort of biosignatures? What are the markers that we should look for that might lead us to infer that not only life is present, but also that life could be present? What constitutes a habitable environment? What sorts of environmental factors were integral to the emergence of complex life or may have played a role in its extinction? So I think there are a number of really critical questions in terms of not only understanding our own planet's history, but also to understand what might life look like on other planets and what sort of trajectories might it take and how do we recognize it? Yeah, it sounds like we can learn a lot of really sort of fundamental principles about life itself by studying these organisms. That's so cool. So what is your favorite fun fact about the Ediacaran period? Gosh, there's so many. <laughs> um, well, Honest yeah, one. <laughs> well, one of the things I really like about the Ediacaran period is that the way it's defined is very different from how we define most intervals in the geologic record, or at least in our in our younger geologic record. So most of our boundaries in, in at least the past 500 million years of geologic time are defined upon the appearance and disappearance of individual fossil species. What's unique about how the Ediacaran period is defined is that it's defined at its start by the end of these catastrophic global scale glaciations. And at its end, it's defined by the earliest really complex style burrowing. So I think this really sums up for me um, why the Ediacaran period is a really seminal one in Earth's history in terms of not only the origins and extinctions of individual organisms, which is sort of how we, we use fossils as markers in time in our more recent history, but also the major transformations of Earth's climate, of Earth's biogeochemical cycling, of environments and life that really characterize this interval. So even just in its definition, the Ediacaran period really sums up um, why this is one of the most critical intervals in Earth's history. It's really fascinating work. Thank you to Dr. Tarhan for joining us on this episode of the YJBM podcast. There are many people behind this podcast that you never get a chance to hear. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home to the YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for helping with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thank you to the YJBM editorial board, especially our editors-in-chief, Amelia Hallworth and Devin Washi, and the deputy editors for the death issue, Kelsey Castle and Wei Ng. Finally, Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Yale Journal Biology and Medicine podcast. We'd love your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing us at yjbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts.